Well, welcome back, ABF Online. We're so glad you're joining us for worship and teaching again this morning. I know that as you watch at home, it's easy to get distracted. So we really encourage you, as Chad and Eric and the team lead us in worship in just a moment, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship him together.
longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, Christ who lives within me, yeah. From beginning till the end, you deserve the glory, you deserve the glory. Oh. It's no longer Welcome, ABF Online. It's good to see your faces. Well, or at least you can see my face. So glad to be with you again this weekend, whether you're watching at Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, or sometime later during the week. We're glad that you're checking in with us. You know, we still want to connect with you in any way we can. So continue to send us prayer requests at 97,000, Or you can email any of the staff using our first names, for instance, john at agurabible.org, and we'll pray for you that way as well. Hey, there's a lot of things coming up. August is a busy month. Can you believe that we're already registering kids for Awana that doesn't start till September 14th? There are two things that need to happen. One, get your kid registered, and number two, uh, see Adrian if you're a volunteer and would like to help out uh, in Awana this next school year for September 2021 and through 22. Then Life Group Sunday, you say, what is that? Next Sunday, August 8th, and maybe this is a good chance for some of you to come back uh, to ABF. We're doing a Life Group Check It Out meeting after first service, after second service. This is for two groups of people. One, anybody who wants to be in a Life Group, and that should be any of you who aren't in a Life Group. Or two, you might want to serve by helping being a host, a co-leader, etc., etc., <clears throat> And so you'll want to be involved with that next Sunday, August 8th, after the service in the well, uh, both times. Then our Canadian Valley Meal Program is uh, August 9th. That's always the second Monday of every month, and there's always needs for food items. I found that the easy food items are easy to sign up for, but if you look at the screen in back, when we go online to that website and sign up for a dinner item. Those are the ones that are hardest to fill. We'd love for you to do that. Next, our ABF barbecue and hoedown. This has become a tradition in the month of August. It starts on Saturday, August 14th, and ends on the 15th. You said, it's a hoedown, it's a barbecue. What is this, a 24-hour eating contest? No, what it is is we're going to have a great barbecue. There's going to be line dancing. There's going to be pickleball. There'll be all kinds of lawn games. And then, for those who want to, uh, you can spend the night in tents, and we'll have a pancake breakfast in the morning. But you can also go just for Saturday night, and that'll include a time of worship around the, quote, campfire as well. Maybe we're actually going to have a campfire, come to think of it. So bring a tent or don't. Spend the night or don't. But everybody come 
that Saturday night. Then, it's hard to believe our men's retreat is just around the corner, August 20th and 21st. We haven't had one in two years. We're going back to Salvation Army Camp in Malibu. It's a Friday night, Saturday. We start 5 o'clock on Friday, and we end at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. Our speaker this year is Joe Basil. You can register online, and you can sleep at home. You can have a room to yourself or two-to-room max. And then uh, just a reminder that we're posting as much as we can on our social media platforms. Our two primary platforms are Facebook and Instagram, and you can get those pictures to us or to Sang Yoon, and we'll get those posted online. And then, of course, we want to thank you for your generosity. Whether you're attending with us or not, we're so glad for your faithful giving. And so I'm just going to thank the Lord and pray for our church uh, before Pastor Scott comes up and preaches. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for those folks, whether they're here with us or online, and we're so grateful for their generosity and their continued giving. And Lord, I know I have people listening in Seattle. Uh, We've had people from Texas in Dallas area and all over the country besides some of our regulars who just can't come back to church yet. And so I just pray for all the folks that are watching online. May you bless them. May you encourage them spiritually. And Lord, we're looking forward to whenever possible to see them again face to face. Thank you for the way you've provided for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, worship team, and thank you, John. Uh, always so good to be together online, and so thankful for the opportunity for us to, to do this, to study God's Word together. We're continuing, actually today we're concluding our series, Misquoted and Misunderstood, and to be honest with you, I'm going to kind of miss it. I've enjoyed uh, studying these different passages, and even my own study, just getting more and more clarity on God's intent behind some of these uh, verses that are so often misused. So last week in the series, and we're starting with a a passage that a lot of us would be familiar. I've titled this message, A a House Divided. For those of us that are in vocational church ministry, we realize, really every pastor, that there's going to be disappointment in ministry life. That's part of the deal. And, And often, if I'm being honest and being transparent with you, often that disappointment is attached to church attendance. Who's going to be there on Sunday? We always wonder. I have a reoccurring nightmare that I'm going to show up on a particular Sunday and it will be a completely empty room. It's hard not to take that personally if we're honest, but there's a verse over the years that so many pastors and so many different worship leaders have found comfort in dealing with lower numbers of people showing up for the service. I don't know if you can think of what verse I might be referring to. Maybe you already saw it in the description of this video, but here's the verse. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. The idea that sometimes when there's just very few people, that's how we console ourselves. That's how we say to ourselves, well, even though nobody else showed up, at least we have Jesus' presence with the two of us here gathered. But what if that condolence or that thing we've clung on to is actually misquoted, is misdirected? What if that's not what Jesus' intent is? In that, as a worship leader reads that verse before worship begins to, as people are kind of stumbling in early in the morning, what if that's not God's design or intent for that verse? Because if you think about it, if you play that out, what is it saying? What is that saying? If If God's waiting to be present with us, only if there's two or three gathered, then what happens when we're all alone? Is he absent? That's not the case. Elsewhere in scripture, there were promised that he'd be with us always, even till the end of the age. Or the other promise that he'll be with us and never leave us, never forsake us. Obviously, those are accurate statements. And so how does this verse fit in? Well, when you actually look at it in the context of the verses surrounding it, there's a very different meaning. There's a very different message that's being communicated. It's actually a passage in Matthew 18. It's surrounded with input on how to address sin in the body of Christ. 
And it's pointing to this idea of a, a second step in that process of addressing sin is often to bring others along with you in the conversation for needed uh, witnesses, needed support. So it's a very practical and important passage. Let me just pray before I explain further. Excited to work through this together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather, as I've mentioned, around your word, because we gather because it feeds us, it fills us, it directs us. We really look to your word as direction for our life. And this important topic right now, maybe one that's avoided so often, is how to address conflict can be so dangerous, where we become a, a house divided if we're not careful. God, I pray that you'd teach us, that you'd grow us even in your understanding of how to address sin, how to address conflict, and how to work through it on the other side. Thank you for this time. We pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, you might question, you might ask yourself, why is this relevant? I would suggest that this area of conflict resolution is something that all of us, all of us, that means you listening here right now, could actually improve in that area. We naturally prefer to avoid the awkwardness of confrontation. It's a lot easier to just talk about a situation behind somebody's back or to ignore it or to hold a grudge or to just basically avoid in this day and age. That takes a lot less effort. And so often we take the easier route. And unfortunately, it's become an epidemic issue, even in our culture, where people, instead of dealing with issues directly, they choose to cancel somebody. You don't have to look very far in the media to hear that expression used, the cancel culture that we've adopted. And when someone's thinks differently than us, when something, somebody does something that we don't agree with, somebody says something, rather than working through it with them in a, just a healthy conversation, instead, what do we do? We cancel them on Facebook. We uh, unfriend them. We choose to ignore them in real life. And unfortunately, that mentality of response to offense sneaks its way into the church. And it leaves us with unresolved conflicts, unaddressed sin, unrepentant sin, and fractures throughout the body of Christ. Many people are really, if they're honest with themselves, are missing out on the joy of the Christian life because they don't ever work through stuff with people that they have issues with. What I'm thankful is that there's a better way. There's another way. As usual, scripture comes through with a clear-cut direction on how we should address conflict in our life. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 18. And we're actually starting a few verses be, uh, before our theme verse. We're actually starting in verse 15 as Jesus teaches on this important topic of addressing conflict. So Matthew 18, 15, we'll begin with. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Man, there's a lot packed into even that first bit of instruction. First thing that you might catch is the word brother is used. This is the identified throughout the New Testament, a fellow believer. So this is important to understand that this is not permission to go confront sin with non-believers. That's not what we're called to do. Instead, he's giving instruction within the body of Christ, within his church on how we're to deal with conflict. And he says to address it, to go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him his fault. Now, upon first reading, that might seem like, oh yeah, that's, that's a natural thing to do. But unfortunately, it's a very unnatural thing. And so often, something's that, something that is avoided. Why is that? Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult to address something with somebody else when you've been offended or when you've been sinned against? I would suggest a number of reasons why it's so difficult. The first one is we're kind of surrounded, I alluded to it, to a culture of tolerance, a culture of tolerance. The prevailing cultural virtue 
is tolerance, and that sneaks its way into the church. When I say tolerance, this idea that, hey, I'm okay with however you are, you just need to, I'll stay away from you, you stay away from me, don't call my stuff wrong, I won't call your stuff wrong. This kind of truth is relative idea is the undercurrent and all of that. But here's the problem, that sneaks into the church and we send this message in an attempt to be relevant and connect with people. We send the message that, hey, listen, you can show up here and you're, to attract outsiders. We say we're normal, just like you, and we sin just like you in order to come across as accepting. Telling people, sending the message that you're safe here with your sin. Now, this is a tricky one because, yes, the, the doors of the church are wide open for sure to, to, for non-believers to come up and show up and, and be exposed to the gospel message. But the intent of that is to ultimately for them to see the error of their ways and to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ. So yes, it's accepting, but there's a hope for change. I saw this quote this last week. Maybe you've heard it before. It says this, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to repentance. There was intentionality in it. Same for us within the body of Christ as it relates to non-believers. But with believers, similarly, the doors are wide open to show up however you are, whatever state you're in, whatever sin you're entangled with, but here's the difference. The important thing to understand is you're too loved to be left alone. There's expected change and transformation to happen within the body of Christ. So this culture of tolerance doesn't work within the body of Christ. It's better to say, we love you too much to leave you in destructive patterns. Which leads me to the second reason that we're too often hesitant to confront somebody or bring something up against somebody is because we belittle the destructive nature of sin. Truth is we have to see it for the destructive apex predator that it is, that it's looking to destroy people and relationships. So we actually have to call it out. When you start to see sin for the damaging potential it has, then you're going to be more amped or uh, interested in confronting it in people's lives that you care about. When you see it and you're just like, man, that is, you're, you're playing with something dangerous. I'll use a silly illustration. You know how I always come up with these crazy things. In my office desk, this is something weird. In my office desk, I acquired this desk from whatever previous pastor was using it. And I looked in my desk in this secret upper compartment and I found this big knife. Now, you might wonder, why does a pastor have a knife? I still ask that question, but something inside of me has decided to just leave it there in case a day comes that I need it. And obviously today being the illustration. Now, play this out with me for a second. I've got this knife and I kind of hesitated bringing knives out in church, but imagine for a moment that I told you, listen, I've been practicing at home with popcorn and M&Ms catching them if you throw them across the room. You're like, oh, that's awesome. You've gotten good at that. Maybe there's somebody even listening right now that's mastered that idea. Now, what if I told you next that I'm so confident in my skill level that I'm willing to have you throw this knife across the room and I think I can actually grab it without getting hurt? You, you would say, Pastor Scott, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is insane. There's pretty much a 99.9% .9 chance that you're going to get hurt when I throw that knife across the room. When you actually start to see sin for the dangerous thing, all right, I'll put this away before somebody gets hurt, for the dangerous thing that it is, when you actually call it as the apex predator, and all of a sudden you're less hesitant to warn a friend that's entangled in it, somebody that you care about, somebody that you love. 
So what else gets in the way? Another thing I think that gets in the way from us doing that very first step here in Matthew 18, 15, is we don't feel qualified to call somebody else out in their junk. Because we say to ourselves, who am I to bring up their sin when I have my own stuff I'm entangled with? But that kind of freezes the whole process. It kind of messes up the sanctification process because so often God's intent in confronting sin is through utilizing one believer confronting another. You remember Nathan, the prophet, going before David. I'm sure Nathan wasn't without sin, but that was an important piece for him to come and to follow the Lord's leading to confront and address sin in David's life. So that's what he tells us to do. And he's real clear about it. He says to come to them alone. Really, that's our best chance for a soft heart and a responsive person is going first to them alone. In this idea of not feeling qualified, it can either do one of two things. It can either freeze you and keep you from actually addressing somebody, something, an issue in somebody else's life, or it can actually influence the attitude in which you approach that conversation. I think the latter is better, obviously. The attitude should be, man, coming with humility because, man, I know I have my own sin. And so when you have that mentality, when you're actually aware of your fallen state, you can actually come to somebody with an intention to see them restored, humbly bringing up their stuff and and saying, man, I understand this is hard. I struggle with it too, but I just had to point this out in your life so that you could see victory in that area. And then you can open, open yourself up to the same. And I'm inviting you, here's another important piece, I'm inviting you to do the same in my life. Man, what would church life look like if you had that level of openness in dialogue? So don't feel qualified. Last one I'll mention, reasons we don't take steps towards this is, is the, probably the most obvious, just fear of their response. We think to ourselves, man, I don't want to lose a friend by bringing up a hard subject. I, I, I don't want to take a gamble. I don't want to uh, take a, a risk of them kind of running the other direction. Basically, we elevate superficial peace over the value of purity. And so for us, it's so critical that we have to, to think through that and say, man, this is, this is so important that, they, that I'm going to pursue purity. And here's the ironic thing. The ironic thing is when we actually take steps towards this, it ends up doing the opposite of what we're fear, fearful of. Look what it says there. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, there's a bond. First off, he's reconciled into the intimacy with God because sin has been addressed and there's repentance. Man, but it also creates a bond and a friendship like none other. I'll tell you what, you can't have any level of depth in relationship if you don't have somebody that's willing to call you out on your junk, whether that's in marriage, whether that's in a friendship, either way, an intended thing we're fearful of ends up actually being something that can create a bond like nothing else. So these are some of the different things that get in the way, but it's so necessary that we fight through that. It's so necessary because so often people don't change. Let's be honest, don't change without something putting the spotlight on what, on what needs to change. We're often blinded by our own sins, so we have to fight through that and confront it and make sure that we're protecting the testimony of Jesus Christ in his church. So that's why it's necessary. Here's the reality is God would rather have a church that's small and pure than one that's large and tolerant. It starts with us taking this charge seriously. When someone, when we're aware of sin, when we're clearly aware of it, we need to wisely start by going to that person with the intention not to rub their nose in it, but to see them restored, to move towards repentance. He gives further instruction in verse 16. Take a look with me. It says, but if he does not listen, he or she, take one, or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Here's the further instruction. You get the idea. It's fairly plain and simple. It's saying if they don't respond to the first attempt by yourself, then it needs to be elevated and bringing others along with you. Basically here, it says that the charge may be established. What does he mean by that charge established? Matthew's talking to mostly a Jewish audience that's familiar with this idea of two or three witnesses being necessary, described all the way back in Deuteronomy 19.15, that they were necessary to establish a case in court, protecting somebody against any kind of false accusations. So Jesus, as he's giving instruction, he says, hey, it's come when they haven't responded to the initial attempt, it's come to the place that we need to bring witnesses into the situation. One, to confirm that the sin has been confronted and also to confirm their willingness or unwillingness to repent. So this is a private group that's maybe familiar with the situation or maybe not familiar with the situation. Probably when you're trying to discern who you wanna bring into that second meeting or that second engagement, you're gonna wanna pick some people that are godly and wise and you know have the ability to interact with somebody, somebody that's not showing up with some kind of agenda find it interesting, even in secular culture, they've adopted this idea with the living room scenes that you've maybe seen even on television with an intervention in somebody's life. Hey, all the family members gather together to confront this particular pattern of behavior in somebody's life. Well, they get that from where it originated with God's design for confronting sin. The bigger group allows them to know the seriousness of the issue. Hey, listen, we, we care for you in the intent is to see you restored. So as it progresses, as you imagine, so you've got one opportunity, two opportunities for them, crossroads where they can either turn from their sin or keep digging in their heels. Now it progresses in verse 17, where there's consequence for the unrepentant. Look at 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, we'll stop there for some explanation. Most interpret, tell it to the church as pulling church leadership into the situation. Many assume that this is a, a third meeting that's required or necessary. That's a, a little bit not definitive, but either way, you see that this is brought to the church and the church then also has the opportunity to address this area of unrepentant sin in the person's life. And if they're not willing to change, if they're not willing to confess their sin, if they're not willing to repent, then there's actually consequence for that. Truth is, is this doesn't happen very often within the body of Christ. It usually doesn't get elevated to this place. Even in my 20, almost 25 years of vocational ministry, this has only happened a, a couple of times uh, that I can recall. And it's something that's just saved for very serious situations. So the person that's uh, reading this might think to yourself, man, that seems dramatic and pretty extreme. So just know that this isn't something that's happening every other week within the body of Christ, but it is intended to elevate the seriousness when someone is not willing to be restored. So why do they do that? Why do they have consequence? Basically, the idea is that it restores purity and deters others from the idea of doing this, the same. It kind of sets an example, if you will. It draws a line in the sand between the church and the world and displays his standard for holiness to everyone. It's saying, hey, he won't tolerate consistent patterns of sin in somebody's unrepentant life. Think about this. This doesn't, you don't have to look very far to discover this. This is a, a necessary part of the life of seeing someone changed. I've been parenting now officially for 16 years and I've concluded the exact same thing, that often desired change is not going to happen without some degree of consequence implemented. Anybody that's raised kids realize or hopefully comes to this exact same conclusion. I remember growing up in uh, 
my dad and uh, mom ran a pretty tight ship in our house. And I remember we'd be at a store or some Walmart or something. And you see some kid throwing a, a tantrum or just going just out of control. And I, my dad would often, we'd tease him about this because he'd often say, oh man, just give me one day with that kid. Just give me one day with that kid. You will never see that kind of behavior again. Because he understood that you implement consequence and there's more chance for change. It's true in every piece of our culture. Think about a, a country or a government that doesn't implement consequence. All of a sudden, man, there's, there's issues and there's anarchy that takes place. We see it even in our own state right now as it relates to, to theft. Like if there's not consequence that's implemented, there's going to be a, a, a gradual decline. So here, as we're looking at this, at this passage, he tells them, he says, if they're not responding to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does he mean by that? Let him be to you. This idea as a Gentile, the tax collector is to be moved from the inside community to the outside, from the inside connection and relationship to being basically put out of community. I'd say like, why is he picking on tax collectors? In that day and age, that would be a, a, a person in the culture that would be considered an unrepentant sinner. It's kind of ironic because this is Matthew's account. And if you know anything about Matthew himself, he was formerly a tax collector. So he knew a little something about life as a tax collector versus somebody that repents and comes to Jesus. So basically, it's pushing the person out of community when they're unwilling to repent. In fact, we see elsewhere in Scripture, this is same idea as outlined. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, we see that Paul even describes the idea of, of not even sharing a meal with this person. Why is it so extreme? Why is it so dr drastic? With the intent of restoration. With the intent of, of, of the sting of the loss of community. Tell you what, if you spend any amount of time alone and set apart from relationships, if there's ever a chance for the Holy Spirit to work and conviction to set in and for the hopefully to be repentance and coming back, that's where it happens most likely the best. I love in 2 Corinthians 7, chapter 8 and 8, or chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, it paints the picture of someone who does come back, who does recognize their sin. And here's the intention in all of this, because you can be quick to read this and be like, man, that just seems pretty harsh and drastic. But all of this has the desire of restored community coming back in and protecting the purity of the church, protecting the influence and impact of the church, the testimony that it has within the world around us. When we neglect that, think of the dangers that that has. And you don't want somebody saying, man, I would never attend that church because I know Johnny attends there and he's the most crooked person and no one ever does anything about it. And he says he's a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't want that kind of testimony attached to the body of Christ. Continuing, we're getting closer to our verse, actually. You're like, man, what happened to the verse that we started by mentioning? Verse 18 continues, and we start to get the picture that God supports this plan. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is where it can get quite confusing, but you have to look at the context of where we've been to understand where we're going. The terms there first used, bind and loose, are basically the decisions or the outcomes that have come after going through a court process. So the determination, and you could probably attach to somebody that's either tied up as they're guilty or somebody that's set loose as they're uh, deemed innocent. Basically here, he's saying that if you go through this process, 
that I've set in place that you first meet with the person individually, then you bring a second uh, witnesses with you, then it goes before the church. I support that. Whatever's decided here on heaven on earth is also secured in heaven. Verse 19 is also often misinterpreted. Look again what it says. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's often thinking that, man, if there's a few of us in this prayer gathering, we're going to actually get what we're asking for. That's not the idea that God will bend his will to man's answering their prayers if they pray together. That's not the idea at all. Instead, instead, it's just the opposite. When we follow his plan outlined in this section, he will endorse and empower their act of obedience. Basically, when you're at the point and you're going through this process, the asking here isn't about prayer of worship in general. It's rather about a very specific context, prayer in which the churches had to discern how to respond to the conflict that they're dealing with. He's saying, I will answer that prayer. It's a reference to the two or three witnesses that's already been referred to that came alongside. He's saying, when that's been determined, I'm in the middle of that and I support that. Then our misquoted verse, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, the same idea. It's not a gathering of prayer or worship. It's a gathering of two or more to help people work through conflict, to address sin in someone's life. Jesus assures us here that when this happens, it's not just the witnesses who are bringing the action against the wrongdoer. He's there with them. He's there in the midst of it. He's saying to, the follower, to, to these followers, if you go through these steps that I've outlined, I'll take care of the rest. In other words, I'm in the middle of your efforts to work through conflict. I'm there with you. I'm in the thick of it. In your time of, of deepest tension, when you're wrestling through, man, I don't know how this conversation's gonna go. I don't know how this second meeting's gonna go. I don't know how it's gonna go when we bring it before the church. Jesus is saying that you don't have to doubt that I'm there with you and you don't have to doubt that I'm gonna respond to your prayers. In other words, Honor him by trusting him with this process. Honor him by trusting him through this process and he'll be in the thick of it with you. He'll answer your prayers, give you wisdom, direct you on that and support the decision that you've made through that process. That's what he promises to the local church. So his stamp of approval, if you will. So my question for us, just as we wrap up, is what would church look like if we stopped playing church and actually implemented this type of ministry? It's clearly one that's neglected. What if we were such a tight-knit church, such a committed church to purity that we said, you know what? We're gonna actually start as brothers and sisters and notice that it doesn't start with the, 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 the leadership of the church. It starts with the congregation. So it's not a, a calling on a specific leader within the church's life. It's a call to everyone who attends. What if we started taking this more seriously? But here's the, pr the problem as I was thinking through this and processing. So often folks are so disengaged within the church that there's no really room for somebody to even know if there was a pattern of sin in their life. They've kept everybody at such arm's length distance that there's no room for this kind of thing that, need, that can happen. That's a part of somebody's transformation. So what if we stopped playing church and said, man, I'm gonna choose to engage to the level that I know and am known by those around me. I'm gonna choose to, to, to not run if somebody brings up an area, a shortcoming in my life. I'm gonna choose to not move on to the next church just because things got a little bit awkward in a conversation or just because I disagreed with somebody or just because I didn't like how a conflict thing played out. I'm gonna choose to stick it out I'll tell you what, this could be an amazing place, a place where it describes, he says, you will gain a brother 
And I think that's true for us. We'll gain brothers and sisters and the level of intimacy within the body of Christ can go through the roof if we take this plan that he's outlined seriously. Let me pray that we head towards that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word and all the time that we do this, it's a trust exercise. It's a trust exercise because we have to say to ourselves, we don't know what's best. And then we start flipping through the pages of your direction and we start to realize, oh yeah, you talk about even these things, how we deal with unresolved conflict, that we would trust you and actually walk through these steps that we wouldn't buy into this cancel culture where we're just done with somebody because they disagree with us or we don't align with them on our particular area. That we choose to put in the work, skipping the gossip route, but instead going directly to somebody when they've offended us or wronged us. God, we pray that you do the work in us, that your Holy Spirit would convict. We acknowledge we can't do any of this without you. And for that, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you for being a part of this service. If anyone wants to stick around, we're going to do some knife-tossing uh, contests here uh, in the follow-up video. I'm just kidding. God bless you. Have an amazing week. Any way we can serve you, let us know.